Good morning, fellowship. Whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been here for a while, whether you're still in your PJs watching us online or you're dressed in your Sunday best or maybe your comfy best here in the sanctuary, whether you're celebrating good news or maybe mourning the thorns and thistles of life, however you're showing up with us this morning, we are so grateful to gather with you. So welcome. I invite you this morning as a part of our call to worship to consider a psalm of David with me, particularly Psalm 34, where David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Friends, when life is good and even when life is hard and all we have to cling to is our hope in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, David invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And he reminds us that blessed is the person, blessed are those who take refuge in him. So as you stand and sing with us.
For the first time ever yesterday, I had the chance to go ice fishing. And as we were walking out uh, to the lake, the snow was falling down, and I couldn't help but say, great are you, Lord, as we just sang, for the beauty of God's creation. In that spirit, and in the spirit of gratitude, let us uh, offer our prayers to God. Blessed are you, O God, creator of the universe. We bless you for the beauty of the winter, for gray clouds and glimmers of sunshine, for falling snow and more falling snow and more falling snow that blankets the earth, creating a monochromatic world. The snow can remind us of our commonality and unity in receiving your goodness. And it also reminds us of your grace that covers, not only covers all our sins, but also prompts us to consider your hand in creating challenging weather. For this world is yours and you made it. You make the snow and cause it to fall. That reminds us that you are not only present in the warmth of sunshine and beauty, but also present in the dark, cold gloom of this world and even of our own lives. For you, as an answer to prayer, are not just our hope of getting out of what's hard, but you're actually present with us in the very midst of what's hard. And so we ask that you might be present with us again amidst all that this week might bring us in our festive gatherings of friends and family or our more difficult conversations with those we are trying to love. In the simplicity of a good book or show under a warm blanket or the challenge of a life-draining workplace. In warm tea or hot coffee with a fellow pilgrim or in our witness to a cold and hurting world. In the stillness of morning's dawn or in the bustle of a full schedule. May the snow all around us remind us again of your faithful presence, the one who not only made this world with all its seasons, but continues to break into it by the power of your spirit. In gratitude, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this morning, we uh, are choosing to uh, acknowledge one of the many months that we have that are... Uh, coined, you might say. Uh, this is National Mentoring Month. Uh, I know that every month seems to have something, uh, but we did not want to miss out on this opportunity. And Diana, our Kids Hope Coordinator, who's going to join me up here, uh, said, let's take uh, this opportunity on, in National Mentoring Month to acknowledge the mentors that are involved in Kids Hope Ministry. And so this morning, we'd like to invite all of those that uh, are mentors through Kids Hope or prayer partners through Kids Hope to stand up so that we can say, thanks be to God for you. But we're not going to clap right away. We're going to let uh, Diana say a few things. So if you're in Kids Hope, please stand up uh, in some way. Yes, jackpot. Hey, what do you appreciate about all these folks, Diana, and their commitment to Kids Hope as mentors? Morning, Nate. Oh. Morning, Nate, and everyone here in the congregation. I appreciate a whole lot. <laughs> but whether I have witnessed it firsthand or uh, spoken to a mentor, you know, discussed things, or even read it on a weekly progress report, I've seen how invested and committed our mentors are to helping and supporting our students, our Kids Hope students. Um, just as an example, we have new mentors uh, this year who have been paired up with their student and realized that their student is struggling with reading, and so they have researched, done a whole bunch of <laughs> reading up on uh, fun and creative ways to engage the student in learning new words and um, reading. 
Um, we've also have an, other mentors who have realized that their student does like to read. And so uh, what they've done is uh, gifted a book that the, the mentor actually enjoys, a book called uh, A Call to the Wild, and challenged the student to read the book over the Christmas break so that when they met up again at the beginning of the year, they can discuss the book. So just these are just some ways in which um, mentors are helping their students. Mentors also um, help regulate emotions. So they're teaching their students how to do that. They are teaching life skills and social skills so students can learn how to interact with other peers and with adults. And I am just so glad and we are fortunate to have all of you here in the community helping uh, over at Lakewood and Makatawa Bay. So I just wanna thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing. And I ask you to persevere and continue, continuing to do the good work that God has called you to do. And for the prayer partners, thank you for praying for the mentor and mentee relationship. Please continue doing that. We know that God hears our prayers and we know that a, the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. So thank you so much for all you do. Let's give God thanks for these folks uh, and their involvement in this one more, one more thing. At the Welcome Center, there are little tokens of appreciation, of our appreciation for what you guys do. So please pass by after the service and pick one up. Otherwise, it's going to stay there, and that would be a, a bad thing. This is, a, this is for everybody or just for the Kids Hope people? Kids, I, I would <laughs> I'm love... Just I'm just teasing. It's for the Kids Hope mentors and prayer partners. Grab I'd love to do it for... We, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Thank you, Diana. We're good. Let's stay. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious song and song by flaming tongues of love. Praise the mountain fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead. 
prophet Zephaniah, these words of peace and restoration spoke over the people of God. Zephaniah says to them, the Lord has taken away his judgment against you. Fear not, O Zion. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, it is because of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have the kind of peace with God that sings over us. The peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And at this time, you may exchange the sign of peace with those around you. fellowship. If I have not yet met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, if you are new with us this morning, uh, maybe you've been here for a few weeks, maybe this is your first Sunday here, maybe it's your first Sunday back in a while. Um, in any case, uh, we would love to connect with you. And if you're ready to take that next step to connect with us, there's something in the back called a connection card. Looks a little bit like that. You can pick it up on any of the tables in the very back and you can fill it out and you can take it over to the Welcome Center. And there's some great folks, some amazing folks, some really friendly folks who are at the Welcome Center who would love to get to know you and help you get to know us a little bit better too. Um, a couple of things that we are celebrating this morning, it's just been a theme, gratitude and celebration and thankfulness this morning. One of the things that we are immensely grateful for here at Fellowship are the countless men and women who have served with us on our consistory over the years. Um, our elders and deacons join the pastors in leading fellowship through care, through mission, and through service, and also all of it to ensure that you as a congregation are fed and fueled for ministry and mission in our world. Um, so don't just take my word for it. There's some great folks who've actually recorded a video to share a little bit of their experience with you. Check it out. Why would I recommend someone join Consistory? It's a great way to figure out what your long-term role and your long-term fit can be in Fellowship Church. Because especially even as a new member at that point, not really knowing that many people and not having a um, feeling for how things got done, what I just what impresses me is the number of people that after they serve a three-year or a four-year term on consistory are still involved in what they did because they got such a, a great uh, feeling or reward, intrinsic reward out of doing what they were doing that they continue, whether it's the mission team or whether it's greeting or, or serving uh, communion, things like that. So you see a lot of people who want to continue to be plugged in. One of the things that I enjoyed about being on Consistory, I've, I've served a couple of different times, is I get to spend some time with uh, other leaders uh, and spend some time watching them um, and how they pull God into their decisions um, and work with 
with others as well and and help us to to guide where the church is going so it's exciting to see the many places where god shows up in our congregation and being on consistory we can actually um, see a broader perspective of what um, our church is doing in this community uh, in the nation in the world my name is Petra Gonzalez, and uh, this is my first year of consistory, and I have really loved being on it this year. Parts of it that I love are serving communion and um, being on the subcommittee of being on mission crew are just some really great parts of being on consistory. Um, if you're feeling hesitant about being on consistory, when you get nominated, there's actually a double slate process. And so it's drawn names, which makes it some level of what you are wanting to give to the Lord and offering up your willingness. And then out of that comes the um, drawing of lots where your name is drawn out of two different people. And if your name's drawn, that is kind of confirmation of the Lord's will. And so that's a really cool part of the process. And it is not, a scary thing to be on consistory. It's really a gift to just be a part of community and to be able to work together to serve the church. That video and maybe you felt a nudge because there's someone in your life here at Fellowship that you think would be an amazing, an amazing addition to consistory. Or maybe you yourself are thinking this is the year where you finally step in. In either case, there's a card that looks like this. It's a little slip for you to nominate others or yourself. You can pick one up over at the Welcome Center and then just drop it off in the box at the Welcome Center too. Um, so speaking of things that apply to the entire church, our all-church retreat is coming up in a few weeks. We have over 75 people signed up for a church retreat that's March 8th through 10th um, up at Timber timber, some wolf um, thing. Um, and so <laughs> we'd love to see you there. Uh, it's a great time of fellowship um, and growing and learning together as a community, lots of winter activities and also a really fun theme of summer Olympics. So uh, stay tuned to find out more about what that's about. Um, that said, um, you can sign up. Um, you can learn more about it. You can sign up on the app. You can also talk to any of the people who are on the planning committee. They're having a great time planning an amazing experience for, for you. So look forward to seeing you there. Um, speaking of trips and retreats, um, we're celebrating because our high school ministry um, did a full weekend over at Gull Lake this weekend. Um, they um, spent the weekend exploring the Old Testament to learn more about God and themselves and playing tons of games and fun activities along the way, bowling, pickleball, climbing. Um, I was texting with Bryce and I asked if they were also going to do axe throwing and he didn't even reply. Uh, so <laughs> maybe that's not covered in the waiver or something. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, when you see a high school student ask them about it, ask them about their experience and what God did within them and around them um, during, the, during the weekend. Uh, speaking of students, um, you may have noticed that here at Fellowship, we have the joy of being an intergenerational church. Um, and that means that, and one of the ways that we live into that is during our community nights where we pause programming for a night um, to engage in an activity across generations. And so coming up on February 7, we're hosting um, something called Protect Young Eyes and specifically um, is an intergenerational event and specifically um, looking at mental health technology and our kids and the complicated intersection between brains and algorithms. And so if you are a part of the ecosystem of a child, if you are a caring adult, if you yourself have a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew, and you've been wondering, you've been curious about the way that technology impacts developing brains, highly encourage you to check this out. You can learn more in the Church Center app, or you can sign up to, to join us for that. As you've heard, there are a lot of things happening at Fellowship 
around fellowship, through fellowship, um, and all of it, we believe, is supported um, by not only your faithfulness um, in life and your generosity in life, but also your generosity in the gifts that you give to and through Fellowship Church. Um, here at Fellowship, we believe that generosity is the best way to live, largely because Jesus taught us to be generous, um, not only with his words, but also with his life and his death and his resurrection. We are so grateful for the many ways that you, as a congregation, live and give generously as faithful followers of Jesus. And so whether you've been giving for a while, or maybe you're taking this step for the first time today, you can partner with us um, through a couple of different ways. There's giving bowls in the back. Um, you can also do mail if you still mail things. Um, and you can also give online. Um, and with that, um, our youths aged 3 through 8th grade are free to follow into the next portion of their worship, and then we will continue in worship here with singing. Thanks. leading us in worship this morning, especially as our friend Jess Nix gets a little break in time away. Good morning, church. The Lord be with you. I'd like to begin today with a bit of an informal survey. Your options are going to be behind me on the screen here. Uh, we'll do a little showing of hands. When I say rules, what comes to mind for you? Okay, so the first one, when I say rules, how many of you think rules are made to be broken? Show of hands couple rebels in the room, sure enough, yeah. <laughs> How many of you say rules are to be obeyed or else? Because maybe God is watching or something. Not a lot of takers there. Okay, how many of you say, I want to be above reproach because others are watching? Couple. How many of you say rules are a good guide into the good life? A lot of you say that, okay, very good. How many of you didn't vote at all? 
Thanks for showing up today, okay? <laughs> Thanks for doing that. Hopefully, you'll see why it makes sense in just a little bit. Today, we're continuing our journey into the Gospel of Mark, where we are finding Jesus not only to be a great teacher, as he is in the Gospel of Matthew, we're finding him not only to be a wonderful Savior, as he is in the Gospel of Luke, we're finding him not only to be a dear friend, as he is in the Gospel of John, but we're finding Jesus also to be our Lord, our Kurios. Now, of course, Jesus is all of these in all of the Gospels. But today, especially, and with the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look to Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. And the big question of the day is, what do you do with your Sabbath time? Our text for today is two stories of Jesus on the Sabbath, but before we read those two stories, I want to offer to you a verse from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says something that I think is thematic for, our today, our, uh, for today. Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. Keep those words in mind as we lean into our two stories for today. They come from the end of Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of Mark chapter 3. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. It says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pluck some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some of it to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So also the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Story two, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand, a withered hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse him. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill, but they remained silent. Then he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed or grieved at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there you have it, two different stories of Jesus, his words and his actions on a Sabbath day. The first story is him out in the world in a field of grain, and the second one is of him in the sanctuary or in a synagogue. And in both instances, the Pharisees are watching him ever so closely. They are like the religious leaders of our day, the senior pastors and the ministry leaders who are ever so interested, watching very carefully what Jesus does and doesn't do on the Sabbath day. In the first story, Out in the World, we're invited to consider what we shouldn't do on the Sabbath. And in the second story, in the sanctuary, we're invited to consider what we 
should do on the Sabbath day. Now, if you check your own life or even Christian history throughout the ages about Sabbath keeping, it seems that we have kind of been on a little bit of a teeter-tottering fence, haven't we? We teeter-totter between legalism and lawlessness, between too many rules and no rules at all. It reminds me a bit of my childhood upbringing days at a place called East Lake. I have some photos up there. I grew up uh, as a family. We had a very small cottage on a very small no-wake lake called East Lake, which was right in between Hopkins, Michigan, and Door, Michigan. Booming metropolis out there. <laughs> in the photo up there, I'm the little guy standing next to my older brother, uh, Nick. And we learned a lot about life at East Lake. It was at East Lake that we would go turtle hunting in a rickety old rowboat with our nasty turtle nets. It was easy to catch the painter turtles. They have small ones. It was really hard to catch those bigger floppy back snappers. They were elusive. It was at East Lake that my older brother got hung up on a tetherball post. Uh, an older kid hit the ball really hard just as my brother jumped and the rope wrapped around his neck and literally hung him there. He had to be lifted up and rescued. And, uh, he had a terrible burn around his neck for about a week after that. It was at East Lake that we had a 40th birthday bash for my mom. We roasted an entire pig. If you've ever done a pig roast before, we did that. And at about noon, we had a grease fire. It was very exciting. <laughs> It still tasted good. It was a little crispy, though. <laughs> it was at East Lake that we would launch water balloons from the dock with one of those big slingshots. We'd shoot them about halfway across the lake. One time, we actually hit a fisherman in his boat. <laughs> he was bareback, and we hit him right in the chest. He was not happy about that. It was at East Lake that I learned to do the watermelon dive, which is basically a cannonball where you pull up both knees and you land on your face. It's pretty awesome. You should try it. <laughs> and importantly, it was at East Lake that I learned to think about what should and shouldn't be done on Sundays. Could we, should we go swimming on Sunday? We did. Could we, should we mow the lawn on Sunday? We didn't. Could we, should we help the neighbor with a project on Sunday? Maybe. Could we, should we make time to go over to Sunday night concert worship at Sandy Pines? We often did. Could we, should we run for cover from the tornado that came rolling across the lake? We didn't have a basement. Should we run to the house that does? We did. Could we, should we watch the Lions today? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> As Bob Dylan once said, the times they are a changing, right? Some 50 plus years ago, the answer to so many of those Sabbath questions would have been no, no, and no, only worship, please. Today, it might be the opposite to all those Sabbath questions. It might be yes, yes, and yes. Why are you even asking? Do whatever you want. Maybe the times are changing Yet again, one commentator has said there was a time in which the fact that we could go shopping or go to a movie on a Sunday, it felt like liberation. 
But now that every commercial enterprise is running full tilt all the time and even on Sundays, now total freedom feels a bit like a burden too, doesn't it? Today I want to suggest that when it comes to Sabbath observance, there's legalism and there's lawlessness, but neither of them is gospel. For gospel, we must turn to Jesus. For only Jesus is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And Jesus appears to be interested in neither legalism nor lawlessness. And the stories that he tells, both of them, the first one, he seems to be unstifling the Sabbath for us. And then in the second story, he seems to invite us to unsquander it a bit. Let's consider each. In the first story that we read, right at the end of Mark chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples, again, they're out in the world, and it is a Sunday afternoon, probably. They're walking through a field of grain, and dun-dun-dun, his disciples are plucking grain and eating it as they go. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, see it, and they say that it is unlawful. Thou shalt not pluck grain and eat it on a Sabbath day, they say. They're doing what many folks might do with a legalistic mindset where the mode of operation is to find a rule and expect people to obey it. And in this case, the rule they have in mind, at least forefront of the mind, is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Interestingly, this commandment is the longest and the most detailed of all of the Ten Commandments. It's kind of a big deal. In fact, according to the scholars who survey the ancient history and Israel among all the, all the nations, they have said that there's really two things that separated the Israelites from the surrounding nations at the time. The two things were circumcision and Sabbath keeping. Now, circumcision is a relatively hidden thing, right? You don't really see that very much unless you're going to go to your neighbor and lift up his robe. Hello, right? Sabbath keeping, however, is actually much more visible. And it was the most weird thing that the Israelites were doing at the time. And they surrounded this Sabbath keeping with all kinds of rules. So according to the Bible, the Ten Commandments even, no work was permitted on the Sabbath. No plowing, no harvesting, no campfires even. And wonderfully, this rule was applied to all people, male, female, slave, free, even animals at the time. According to Jewish tradition, another set of rules, you could walk around on the Sabbath, but only up to 1,999 paces, okay? Anything else was considered a journey, which is strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. I am currently at 4,253, so I'm, oops, oops. According to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a recent discovery of some more documents dating right back to the time of Jesus, God's people were forbidden to carry a child on the Sabbath. They were forbidden to help an animal give birth on the Sabbath, or even to help that animal out of a pit if it falls into that pit on a Sabbath day. According to the Mishnah, I'm giving you a bunch of examples here, but these are another pack of Jewish laws. According to that, you could write one letter to a friend on the Sabbath, but not more than that. If a roof collapsed on the Sabbath, you could prop it, but not repair it. And if you dislocated a finger, you had to leave it that way, 
until not the Sabbath. I dislocated my thumb at youth group in high school when I was a little kid. I would have been in trouble if it real stood. As you can see, Sabbath rules can really start to pile up and even start to sound rather ridiculous. But actually, there is a perfectly good logic that stands behind all of these rules that crowded around Sabbath keeping. I've come to call it the freedom of fences. The idea is that you identify something that is supremely important, like loving God or loving your neighbor. The two things that Jesus said are the most important things. You take that primary thing and you start to build some fences around it, some laws of do this and don't do that in order to keep that thing a main thing. And so love God is the first major commandment. And we have four of the 10 commandments, the first four, which are oriented around loving God. The next six are kind of built around loving your neighbor. So the idea is that these rules, these fences kind of pile up as a way of keeping the main thing, the main thing. It's a pretty good idea. The trouble is that it can and often does happen that it becomes all about obeying all of those rules and you begin to forget about the thing that they were designed to protect in the first place. And so it was happening with the Sabbath. In fact, get this, by the time that Jesus was on the scene, there had developed uh, 39 different categories of Sabbath rules. That's categories of Sabbath rules. And there were six subcategories in all of those 39 categories, meaning we got 234 categories of Sabbath rules to keep. Get obsessed about those, and you can quickly take an adventure in missing the point. Obsessed with the rules and forgetting about loving God in the first place. That was what was happening at this time. And when faithfulness gets reduced to a kind of legalism, it's a bit like tossing the baby out with the bathwater. Now enter Jesus into this very scene, and he makes two bold claims. First, he diverts their attention back to the creation story where God established the Sabbath in the first place, and the Sabbath was made for people, not the other way around. It's supposed to be a gift, not a burden. And then the second thing that Jesus says, even more bold, is he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, which suggests that he gets to be a rewriter of the rules. And it begs the question, well, then are there to be no rules altogether? Turn the page into the next chapter of our Bible, and sure enough, that becomes the issue. Now Jesus and his disciples are in the sanctuary, and it's a Sunday or a Sabbath day, sorry, Saturday for them, Sunday for us. Uh, uh, they're in the sanctuary. And if the previous story is what's not allowed on a Sabbath day, what shouldn't be done, this one actually becomes more about what should be done. It's against legalism. If the first story, Jesus is correcting the pattern of stifling the Sabbath so much that it steals, kills, and destroys life. Now in this second story, Jesus is inviting us to not squander the Sabbath, by failing to do the most important things on it. The issue in this instance is that Jesus pulls a man into center stage of the synagogue. He has a withered hand. And by all measures, it looks like Jesus is intentionally creating a scene in this particular moment. The Pharisees, who are his accusers, have kind of followed him along the way, and Jesus is creating a scene on purpose, and now Jesus is the one who's going to ask the questions. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. 
Is it permissible? Is it commendable to do good? And then after that, he turns up the stakes even further. After asking about good and evil on the Sabbath, he then goes even further to say, is it okay to save life or to kill on the Sabbath day? Now, of course, there were already rules about this. This was already settled according to all the rules. And they basically would say in modern terms that first aid, emergency care was allowed. But anything other than that was not. Today, we would call it maybe elective surgeries, not permitted. Save that for another time. But emergency stuff was permitted. Jesus, however, as Lord of the Sabbath, is going to do two brilliant things in this scene. First, he's going to broaden the definition of what it means to save life. Not only emergency medical care, but even more broadly, it's about doing good that includes healing and restoring life, bringing life back to any place that is otherwise dead, like this man's withered hand. He's much more creative about what it means to do good and to save life. But the second thing that Jesus is going to do in this moment is he's going to draw attention to the dark deeds of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, even as Jesus is intending to do good in this scene, the Pharisees are simultaneously plotting evil. They are working a plan that will ultimately move towards killing Jesus. How ironic. No wonder they're struck silent when Jesus asks these very questions. Now, one of the details that I hope you notice in this particular story are the strong emotions of Jesus. Jesus gets angry and sorrowful, or he grieves in this story, and both kind of at the same time. Mark is the gospel that helps us to see these strong emotions of Jesus more so than most of the other gospels. Other gospel writers maybe tame it down a little bit. But here's a list of many of the uh, emotions that Jesus experiences, strong emotions in the gospel. We have a great class going on on Wednesday nights right now about handling emotions well. And Jesus is a great example in this particular instance. He gets angry and sorrowful, but it's surprising a little bit in the ways that he does just that. I pulled a commentator's words because they're better than what I could say. So this is what the commentator says. It says, Jesus is angry because of his enemy's murderous designs. He is grieved because of the callousness of their hearts. You might expect the opposite, that he would sorrow over the possibility of his own death and be angry at his enemies for being against him. But Jesus is no sword-wielding rebel. He is a man who grieves deeply over his enemies and who gets angry in order to save life. By contrast, the Pharisees have heartless hearts. Their callousness is worse than a withered hand. Not only will they fail to save life on the Sabbath, they will now use the Sabbath in order to kill Jesus. This past Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and Martin Luther King Jr. is one who seems to have captured a bit of the emotional power of Jesus in this particular moment. Martin Luther King Jr., like Jesus, is the one who often offered the nagging reminder that we are to love even our enemies, that we are to oppose unjust systems while still loving the perpetrators of that system, that we are to let our oppressors know 
that our desire is neither to defeat them nor to get even with them, but rather to move forward with them into a different and better future. For Jesus and for Martin Luther King, anger was an okay thing, but anger only at evil deeds. Sorrow, however, even love toward persons who are clearly lost, who have callous hearts, and who know not what they do. So in this second Sabbath story, through actions and through emotions, Jesus is demonstrating for us that he is quite interested in keeping a day that is different than all the others, a day in which we do good and not evil, a day in which we creatively save life and do not destroy it. And by all means, don't squander the Sabbath day. At the minimum, we could perhaps learn from this moment and use our Sabbath days as an opportunity to uncallous our hearts and unwither our hands towards God and other people. Which brings us to the last bit about how we might use a Sabbath day well. A true celebration of the Sabbath is neither legalism nor lawlessness. It neither stifles the day or the life that we live on it, nor does it squander our life, or the day itself. The question is, what do you do with your Sabbath time? Are you more likely to pile up so many rules that the reason for keeping the Sabbath in the first place is just lost altogether? When I was talking with my parents about Sabbath keeping out at East Lake, I called them up this week and we laughed together about how if you have a legalistic mentality, the best thing to do on a Sabbath day is just sleep right? At least then you're not going to break any rules and the time will pass by quicker. But in the first story, I hope you do notice that Jesus actually defends his disciples for doing the very thing that sustains purposeful living, even on a Sabbath day. Or maybe you're a little bit more likely to ignore the Sabbath altogether, to treat it like every other day, no difference whatsoever. In that case, you may not be stifling the Sabbath, but you might be squandering it. I'll remind you, Jesus remains Lord of the Sabbath. And even Jesus recharged his batteries in time alone with the Father. Jesus was a regular at the synagogue. Jesus did not refrain from doing the good that was right in front of him on a Sabbath. And Jesus was inventive about what it means to save life even on a Sabbath day. About that, I hope you notice in the second story that Jesus actually still does no work. Brilliantly, he does no work on the Sabbath day, even as the man's hand is healing. The man simply offers that withered hand to Jesus, and it becomes well. I wonder if we could experience that same kind of restorative power in our own lives if we are simply willing to offer our Sabbath time to the Lord of the Sabbath. After all, he is the one who said that I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I have not come like a thief who steals, kills, and destroys. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So again, what do you do with your Sabbath time? I'll suggest just three very simple things. Stop, start, and stay. First, stop. Get off the hamster wheel of life. Stop working. Stop hustling. Remember, the first purpose of the Sabbath 
where God stopped from all his work and enjoyed the creation he had made. If you're never resting, then you may be a slave to something. If you're never resting, you are a slave to something. So against the idols of our age, the idols of achievement or, or accumulation or accolades or efficiency, whatever they might be, rest is an act of defiance. It says, I will not be owned. It's also an act of trust. Trust in God who rules the world. Trust that it will be okay, that I will be okay if I stop to enjoy. After stopping, then start. Do something. Do something good. Do something Godward. Do something life-giving. Do something life-saving in a wonderfully creative way. Do whatever it takes to uncallous your heart and unwither your hands towards God and towards others. And finally, stay. Stay connected. Stay connected with God as much as you are able. Stay relationally in tune with the people that have been entrusted to you. Stay in those good places. Rather than stifling your Sabbath, rather than squandering it, maybe this is a way to fully enjoy it. Stop, start, and stay. Think about it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's now uh, move into a time of celebration. It's Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's stand and let's sing about the beautiful name of Jesus. You were the word at the beginning, one with God the Death could not hold you 
fail toward before you. Silence the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. Raise up your glory. Friends, as you go from this place to unstifle and unsquander your Sabbath, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.